Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to Tech Time with Summer's F1, presented by Mist Apex Podcast. We live F1. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and this episode is called I'm Techin' Tired 2 MG UK Boogaloo Holiday Special. Thanks to Lydia and Slack for putting a bow on that one for us. And I am joined today by none other than the hardest working man in Tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, assistant technical editor at motorsport.com, the man with the plan from Techistan, and known to all the cool kids onto Intertubes as Summers F1. Summers, thank you so much for joining us today. And it's good to see you too, Matt. Yes, well, you know, it, it has been a while. A few things have happened. There's lots of tech news to get through. You've been a very busy beaver over there at Motorsport. You've been putting on some excellent articles. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, it has been busy, considering obviously the type of season that we've had and obviously the future that we're looking at. But yeah, there's plenty to talk about, talk about as always. Great. Well, before we get to that, I just need to remind everyone we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. So let's get right to it. I would like to start. Everyone thinks you must be starting with Mercedes. Mercedes is the thing. But I actually I want to talk about Red Bull and I find them interesting for the the following reason is is it seems like this year. They, they kind of threw the kitchen sink at the problem of beating Mercedes. Like, they really seem to go all in. I know you talked early on about their new suspension and all their other bits. And I'm curious to get your take on how that went for them. Like, like was it a success relative to what you think they might have hoped to have gotten out of it? Yeah, I mean, obviously, they did a huge amount of work going into the season, because they wanted to catch up to Mercedes with the view of obviously the new car coming in for next year as well. 
obviously that being delayed has changed a lot of the technical aspect of the sport in the background. And there's several battles that have to have been fought uh, to deal with those issues that will be raised uh, throughout the next two seasons now because of the transition to the uh, ground effect car. But yeah, as you say, the, the the suspension change and steering rack change that we've seen from Red Bull, I think, has been a benefit to them. But I think it took them a long while to get that working. And because of the type of what I'm calling super season that we've had, it's made, um, made life a little bit difficult. They've had to do things on the fly. Uh, whereas, you know, when they go to normal a normal uh, calendar, uh, you, you have this scenario where you've got the data to present to that particular track. And we haven't had that for a lot of the events this year. So that will have stymied their progress a little bit. But you have to say that they really do have had a lot of progress throughout not only the start of the season, uh, where you would expect them to be weak um, because that's where they have uh, behaved in the past, uh, but predominantly what I found with Red Bull this year is that, as you said, chuck the kitchen sink at it. Um, total rework of the car in the back end of the season uh, from the front to the back of the car. Uh, nothing, No stone left unturned as they've tried to find that performance to catch up to Mercedes. Uh, so what were some of the more interesting things that you saw and, and what do you think they're being aimed at? I, I know you've detailed them throughout the season, but I just pick a few of your holiday favorites for us, if you would. Okay, so obviously there's a lot of work gone on on the front wing. Uh, you know, this is a, a major area for Red Bull in terms of the way that they create their performance and more specifically how they generate their Y250 Vortex. So the last few races from the Turkey Grand Prix onwards, they've had a new front wing on the car, which I think is more keyed towards what we'll see for next year. Uh, but they've taken what they've learned and applied it to this year's car as well. They also tuned things like the cape. They've had a new floor. They've had new diffuser, new rear wing. Uh, they've changed the wastegate positions, uh, which is very interesting because they were the only ones running their wastegates in the higher position, which a lot of people kind of felt that that was something to do with blowing the rear wing. And now they've lowered it into the more conventional position that everybody else sort of follows, which is down below the exhaust line. So there's a lot been going on and a, a lot of work I feel that might have gone to marry themselves to the way that the Honda perform Honda power unit was performing as well. Because at the end of the day, as we know from the likes of Ferrari, if you aren't aligned with your power unit, then you aren't going to get the, the maximum level of performance from the chassis and the arrow as well. Right. And I, I know that's the case, but I, I did have a curious thought. Do you think that Red Bull expected to be Mercedes' closest competitors? I mean, to me, because if you look at them at the beginning of the year, because uh, people went through and they did like percentage comparisons, you know, this year's qualifying to last year's qualifying. And if you looked at the gains made, uh, well, even Haas had made better gains in their qualifying than Red Bull did early on. Do you think they were sort of hoping to kind of hide in the shadows a little bit at the beginning of the year, kind of draft off of Ferrari a little bit and do their work out of the limelight? And do you think maybe suddenly being the only competitor, and, and by I, and when I say they, I mean Max, of course, being the only competitor to Mercedes, um, do you think that might have affected them negatively in terms of being prepared for the following season? I mean, they do tend to show up a little a day late and a dollar short to testing anyway, and they make it up over the season. 
but do you think they might have gotten suckered into chasing Mercedes a little bit more than they should have? Yes and no. I think that the, the thing that you have to remember is is that Red Bull had a, a different starting point or a jump off point in the first place anyway. They knew that they were behind the curve, irrespective of where Ferrari sat within that pecking order. They knew the difference and the gap to Mercedes. And don't get me wrong, they did a fantastic job, but you have to say that the job that Mercedes did on their 2020 car was far beyond everybody else anyway. And they really raised the bar. And that is where the major difference between the two has, has opened up because there was such a, a void for them to, to, to catch to, to Mercedes. As you say, you know, the fact that Ferrari weren't there as, as another enemy to, to take the fight to Mercedes is, is a bit um, difficult to swallow if you're a fan that obviously is of a neutral persuading. Uh, but I do feel that uh, Red Bull did a very good job, not only at the start of the season, but throughout the season to be able to try and reel in Mercedes. But as you say, I do think that that will have come at the cost of maybe next season and even 2022, perhaps. Well, next season, I could totally see because, I mean, I know we're going to get to Mercedes in a second, but one of the questions I have for you about all the teams we're going to discuss today is, you know, how did they approach this season? When did they start to dial back I'm trying to fix this season and start pointing at next season. But as we all know, if you're stuck into what you think is a championship fight, you're going to be tempted by tomorrow's race rather than next year's race. And I think for Red Bull, I guess the point I was making from from my point of view is they expected Ferrari. It's not about Ferrari taking points off Mercedes. It's that they were the only competitor of Mercedes and that put the pressure on them to step up their game and not follow whatever original plan they had. Like, oh, well, we were planning to be competitive by mid-season. Well, after the second race, you're like, there is no Ferrari and everyone's looking at us to chase Mercedes. And I just wonder if that might not have affected their planning and development a little bit. I, I, I'm not so sure. I, I think... Red Bull always tend to have their own kilter when it comes to these things anyway, in terms of development. They don't tend to follow the the generalised pattern uh, as much as that they have in the past had slow starts to the season because they prefer to have a ramp up in the middle of the season when they understand the car. Because I have to remember that every time that these guys turn up to a test at the start of a season, they're starting with a new data set. So they go in there, they learn about the car, and then they start to develop from there onwards. Whereas this year, they've tried to do similar to what other teams do in as much as that they'll continue that development curve throughout. And I think that that has been beneficial for them in some respects because it has allowed them to ramp up uh, the performance gap between them and Mercedes. But obviously that does come with a penalty because, you know, you don't have infinite resources. So if you take one thing from one area, then you are going to suffer in another respect. And so for me, what Red Bull have done this year is, is they've looked at the fact that there's now going to be an interim year and that 2020 is very similar to 2021 in terms of the technical regulations, in terms of the way that we will be carrying a lot of the chassis across to next year. And they thought, well, perhaps we do just throw a a big chunk of our weight behind this car, hope that we can catch up and then apply that to next year's car as well. And that is more or less their thinking is that, you know, they're, they're prepared to have a continuous development plan for both this year and next year uh, as they move towards the ground effect car for 22. 
All right. So before we leave Red Bull, um, I know there was one piece in particular that you got kind of excited, that everybody got kind of excited about, excited in the way that I got excited explaining a CFD diagram to my wife, who was so completely uninterested. I cannot even begin to tell you. Um, the person who actually tweeted it apologized to her. Um, but this upright, this crazy hollow upright that they're running, what is that about? And what do you think, what kind of gains are they trying to make with it, um, either for this season or for next season, if you think it's going to be a part we see next season? Okay, so that, that's a really interesting story, the upright, because it's linked to what happened to Mercedes and Racing Point at the start of the season. It's all come about realistically because of a clarification of a rule. So obviously we've got Racing Point and Mercedes with a similar solution, and they've had that since last year. Uh, basically, there's a there's a throughput in the um, upright itself that allows the airflow, in Mercedes' case, to then flow into the brake drum, and then that is used to either cool or heat the uh, rear tyres. Um, and a clarification in Australia because of Red Bull came about in order that Mercedes had to had to blank that off or create a, a full opening so that the air could flow from one side of this inlet that had been created in the overarching upright um, straight through. And that is what now Red Bull have on the RB16. So it's interesting to see that a clarification of a rule that affected or hurt one of their competitors has actually ended up on their car as well, all being a slightly different uh, variation and obviously a legal one compared to what was the case with Mercedes and Racing Point. All right. Well, then we were talking about Mercedes. Let's talk about Mercedes. Um, what is it? I mean, we know they're the class of the field when it comes to reality. I mean, you can always talk about, oh, they've done this, they've done that. But when it comes to putting things on the track that work, I, it's, I don't think you can argue with Mercedes just being just being head and shoulders above everybody else. So what was it early on that, that caught your attention? What have they done? Um, and where are they going with this? I mean, is is what they've done this year, I know some of it has been outlawed, but but what that they've done this year do you think we're going to see next year? Well, obviously, we're going to see a lot of what we've already seen because we will effectively have B-spec cars for next year. Uh, chassis changes are, you know, limited by the, the token system. Um but they, they put a lot of work in Mercedes over the winter last year in basically just tying components together. It's like I like to explain it as a daisy chain. And if one link isn't quite right, then the whole chain just falls apart. And effectively, Mercedes are very good at finding performance in small pockets and then using that performance to then link to other areas in which that they can find more performance. So it's sort of like a knock-on effect. You know, they, they always find performance from one area to the next. And one of the big things that Mercedes did last uh, at the start of this year that they hadn't done before was move to the solution that we saw from Ferrari in 2017 with the side impact structure being lowered, which obviously then means that you get more clean airflow through to the side pods. And that has obviously meant that Racing Point don't have that solution um, for this year because they've got last year's Mercedes design, let's say. Um, but one thing ties to another because if you make that improvement, you can then change something else that then allows you to open up performance elsewhere. And it's this just knock-on effect that we have from Mercedes, the, the way that they think. And one department works with the other 
very, very closely. It's not a case of I'm designing this piece in isolation, you know, and all, all teams do it. It's just that Mercedes seem to be able to do it on a different scale to everybody else. They're, they're just very, very good at tying things together so that they all work uh, as a cohesive unit. Right. Well, I think one of the, mo- the one of the most um, headline grabbing things they did was the DOS system in, in terms of everybody was talking about it. But that that they don't even get that into next season. But you did a lot of talking about the single versus the double p- pillar rear wing. Tell us a little bit about that development and how it affects um, how it affects them going forward. What were they looking for there? Well, it's a design choice at the end of the day. Each team designs their rear wing based around the the rigidity of the structure itself, how it's affected by aerodynamic flows, um, and each of them will make a decision based on several different aspects, uh, whether it be uh, how much the rear wing moves around or you know how much DRS is affected by having one pillar or two pillars. Uh, and it, it's interesting to see that Mercedes tended to run either the single pillar or the double pillar, depending on the type of aerodynamic configuration of the circuit that we're visiting. So it just goes to prove that obviously the DRS effect is different depending on which of those configurations they use. And interestingly, we've seen Red Bull move to the single pillar pillar at the last race of the season, um, which is what Mercedes have trended towards throughout the season. So again, it's one of those kind of areas where, you know, you're down to trends. Um, It's down to the fact that perhaps you might be trying to do something with the aero in terms of flexibility. Um, You might be deciding to package something a little bit differently, or you might be trying to get a different effect from the exhaust for argument's sake. So there's loads of different reasons behind the the different design decisions. And it's always interesting to see, you know, the the diversity of design amongst the different teams in that respect. Okay, well, I'm going to ask the obvious question. You say that they would choose single or double pillar depending upon the aerodynamic demands of the circuit. So what was the correlation? And just to clarify, circuits that are low speed tend to be high downforce because you're not going very fast. So it takes more extreme angles to make the car stick to the road. Do I have that understanding correct? Yes. <laughs> um, and in terms of them using the double or the single pillar, again, it, it actually on some occasions came down to driver preference. Um, so yeah, the, the swings and roundabouts behind the, the design um but mercedes have obviously had both iterations which is unusual you don't tend to see that between the teams they tend to stick to one particular solution throughout the year and then obviously adapt their um, aerodynamic configuration behind the scenes whether it be high medium or low downforce that that goes with it but mercedes obviously decided that um this option would give them different uh, availability of the DRS fe- effect as well. Yeah, and I know we like to talk about Mercedes as being faultless, but the fact is they started the year with with a problem and they ended the year with a problem. So what what was behind the um, the issue with their MGUK in Austria at the beginning? Um, uh, sorry, MGUK with their gearbox at the beginning of the year in Austria, and then at the end of the year we saw them suddenly blowing up engines. Uh, thanks to, I assume there was an MGUK update or some kind of, um, I don't know, some kind of parameter they decided to uh, test and 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 shouldn't have. 
Yeah, well, the gearbox issue was down to noise. Uh, they had a noise created by um, the gearbox itself and the componentry within that then affected sensors within the gearbox. And effectively, then you're, you're putting them in a fault situation. Um, uh, the thing that really, really I find interesting is how quickly Mercedes were able to resolve that issue, though, because we were a week between Austria and the Styrian Grand Prix. And what looked like a race failure in Austria I know they didn't end up having failures, but it looked as if they were going to have failures. The next week, we barely heard about it. And I know they tried to stay off the curbs, and that then played into the fact that we saw how big their advantage was because they didn't need to go on the curbs, whereas everybody else did to get the lap time. Um, but it's the thing that always amazes me about Mercedes is how quickly they re- react to these problems. You know, it, it's all well and good having a problem. But if you don't react quickly to it, then it just festers. And that, unfortunately, is what a lot of teams end up in a situation with, is that they have these issues and they can't seem to resolve them. Whereas the way in which Mercedes seem to work, they're able to troubleshoot it and get around them very quickly. In that particular case, they wrapped the wiring uh, very differently um, inside the gearbox casing, I believe, along with a few other minor fixes. But you know, just to, to do that within a week... Um, for me, it's very interesting that they're able to to come up with those solutions so quickly. Yeah, I, I, now that you talk about it, I'm I'm remembering it was really a, it was a resonance thing. They were, it was creating a it was creating essentially like a sound that was interfering with the sensor's ability to read signal, and um, and in the, the fact that they were able to sort it out, I guess acoustically, if nothing else, instead of a week, it's an impressive feat of engineering do you know anything about what's going on with the mguk problems they had at the end of the year i don't know specifics if i'm honest um however we have to remember at the end of a cycle and we have to remember that there's been a lot of stress on the componentry this year in terms of getting things to races so perhaps there might be a slight quality control issue um not saying that that is accurate but that is a good guess um, in terms of the fact that after a certain lifespan, the, that particular component is susceptible to damage. Um, we've seen it before with Red Bull, say with alternators uh, back in the V8 era. Um, so that wouldn't surprise me at all. But the other thing that does spring to mind about MGUK is that there was a lot of talk around Mercedes not being able to restart their car using the MGUK, and they suddenly can. So does that play into that storyline a little? I'm sure we'll only find out with time. Oh, so they might have they might have fixed the starter issue, and that was important because when we saw people lining up in the rain to go out in the in the in the um, rain for qualifying, Mercedes had to wait in their pits because they couldn't roll to the end and stop their car to keep it from overheating till the green light came on, and every other team could do it. And you think they might have just been like uh, maybe Williams with their dash not in the steering wheel, thinking why on earth did we not do that and now maybe with the engines blowing up maybe they're like right right that was why we didn't do it that way originally but you know i i suspect as you say mercedes won't go back on the ability to do that they will simply solve the problem and move forward i'm going to ask you one more question i know we talked about red bull and specifically how being second in the championship um that they might have continued to develop this year's car which isn't as much of a disadvantage because the rules are being so similar between the two seasons. 
But still, pointing at this year, uh, Mercedes, did they do the same thing? Did they stop development early? Or, or I mean, you know, like how, how, how many appendages were tied behind their back for the latter part of the season? I guess that's a question I'm asking. Okay, should we play a guessing game, Matt? Do you want to have a guess at which round we last saw a development from Mercedes? Um, okay. All right. Um, I'll, I'll make it easier for slightly easier for you. Okay. It was a front wing. It was a front wing. They basically that was the last adjustment that Mercedes came with. They had a new front wing. Um, was it Turkey? No, you're a mile out. Uh, of course, I'm a mile out. Okay, let's go the other way. Was it the uh, first race in Bahrain? <laughs> no, no, you're even further out because you're going the wrong way now. Oh, good lord, Spa. We're getting closer. Oh my gosh. Um. Oh Lord, Monza. Getting there. It was Mugello oh round nine. <laughs> round round nine of the championship was the last time that Mercedes had a part on the car that was fresh. You know, something that's a, an aerodynamic right. statement. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say they haven't had new parts because there's always parts being bought to the cars. And specifically in terms of lightening things. Um, that's one thing that I think is often ignored is the fact that many components around the car are changed throughout a season, but you can't see that change because it's a, a physical change in terms of the actual weight of that component. And there's always one way to figure that kind of thing out. And that is when we have a red flag situation and you suddenly see Joe Bauer with a set of scales weighing out things that need to be changed on a car. So you can tell that there's obviously differences in the weight of elements around the car because a team wants to put a new component on the car that's slightly different to the one that's coming off of it. But because there's a milligram of weight difference, they can't put that on the car. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, it, it, come, it comes down to the tiniest fractions. But, uh, yeah, the, the, big, the, the last change that we saw from Mercedes, big, bigger change, should I say, is the front wing that they introduced in Mugello. That is just mental, if you'll pardon me appropriating that word. It, it's it, it, like, wow, just wow. Um, and have you seen anything of from them of what they're planning for next year? Ha- have you seen anything showing up that might be parts specifically for next year? And I know they had like the young driver tests and, and some other maybe some filming opportunities. So so what's what's on tap for them? Okay. First up, I just want to say, obviously, Mugello being round nine means that that's the last time you saw a physical part going on the car. doesn't mean they stop developing. They don't, they don't ever think that they're not going to put something new on the car. But also, on top of that, you have to think that because that's a physical component going on the car, the development for that front wing actually stopped several races months previous to that. So now we're talking about the difference between uh, the initial idea wind tunnel, CFD, real world, so on and so forth. And that just goes to show how long it's been that Mercedes haven't had anything in production-wise for uh, this car this year. But on top of that, as you say, uh, the really interesting part about Mercedes is what they did in Abu Dhabi because everybody's going, oh, well, this great performance from Red Bull all of a sudden that's made them vault up the... uh, the pecking order and they obviously beat Mercedes in Abu Dhabi 
but let's have a think about what they actually had on the car in Abu Dhabi that was then relevant for the test for Van Dorn and De Vries to test in the tyre test. And they had a new front suspension, which is going to have an impact on the way that the tyres operate. And they had a new cooling system and aerodynamic package that was suitable for that uh, package that meant that they had to turn the power unit down. So all of a sudden, the result that they had in Abu Dhabi is then brought into perspective. And it also then makes you realise that how much data they've accrued over four days at the end of a season that nobody else has done because they haven't had the foresight to load their car with new bits that uh, will give them a head start into next season. Okay, so so wait a minute. Let me understand this clearly. We all know that there was a Pirelli tire test, and we all know that Pirelli threw a great deal of shade at the teams after the drivers complained from the previous round that perhaps if the teams bothered to run the tires at the correct pressure maybe adjust some settings on the car to match the tires that were being tested, they might get better results. And are you? Are, am I understanding that Mercedes not only showed up ready to do that, but they had a whole passel of new parts that they're going to be on the car next year so that they could get data that no one else would have for next season because they, they just weren't going to be bothered with it? Yeah, I mean, the, the, there are some caveats behind everything that's just been mentioned. For argument's sake, that I must obviously stress the reason why Mercedes did this, and that is because in the post-season test, you must run in the same configuration as you raced. And so, obviously, the reason that all this stuff was loaded onto the car was so that they could take that into the post-season test. There is also the fact that the postseason test was on 2020 tyres because it was a young driver's test. It wasn't a tyre test as such. So we had data for 2020 in that uh, day's worth of running. However, there was 2021 compatible tyres available on the Friday session in Abu Dhabi, of which Mercedes spent all of FP2 using rather than doing race data unlike the rest of the teams. So again, it feeds into the fact that Mercedes have essentially used Abu Dhabi as a four-day test. It just, uh, what, galaxy brain? I don't know. What do you even say? 3D chess seems to not even begin to cover the game they are playing compared to the rest of the field at this point. Um, But since we're talking about Mercedes, let's talk about the other Mercedes in the field, Racing Point. Now, I know we have kind of beaten this subject into submission we know that they ruled the brake ducks illegal we know racing point was penalized to an extent that cost them third in the championship for everyone who thought it was just a slap on the wrist at the beginning of the season but are we beginning to see i mean the rules have changed too um but are we beginning to see some divergence between where racing point wants to go with this low rake philosophy and where Mercedes has already taken it uh, this season, which if they were doing nothing but copying, you'd expect them to copy exactly what Mercedes did this year. Well, as I mentioned earlier, they can't copy exactly what Mercedes did this year because unless they're going to spend their tokens, which again is a a topic up for debate about racing point because of them being able to get a free gearbox upgrade, um, is the fact that they don't have their side impact spars in the same position as Mercedes. So from a cooling point of view, they're kind of in a bit of a sticky wicket because they can't obviously have the lower side impact spars, uh, which means they then have to 
have a different layout in terms of the aerodynamic package and the cooling package, which is, to be honest, something we saw from them at Mugello. They introduced their new package there, the one that got torched when Lance went off. Um, and again, it, it's it's something that I, was very interesting from my side of things because it wasn't Mercedes-esque. It was something that was of their own design. It was actually more like the Williams side pod package in terms of the way that the, it looked. Uh, very much more like, um, if you remember, the downwash ramp that we had with the um, exhaust-blown diffusers. And if you got to see the footage when um, Perez's car went up in flames in Bahrain, we actually got a good idea of how all of that airflow was operating because it sh- it, it, the smoke basically showed you the direction in which the airflow is traveling over those side pods down and towards the, the tire spat area. Um, so racing point are a difficult one because like you say, they, they've kind of locked themselves into a Mercedes philosophy, but they didn't expect this interim regulation set. So they were banking on being able to take the advantage for one year and not end up in this situation where, you know, they've got to redevelop the car for 2021. But you have to say they have got a good starting point because, you know, they've got the uh, the, the second best car in the field, effectively. Right. And I did want to ask about that a bit. Um, it seemed to me, in my own minorly educated opinion, that the results they got, particularly early in the year, they were really struggling with, I'm going to bring up the word now, uh, tires in the race. And that a lot Spanish of that will kill you for that. Yeah, I know. And a lot of that really may have been down to the fact that they they had a brand new concept with no data to support it, and then the added burden of going to a lot of tracks where they wouldn't even had old historical data to look at that would have only been vaguely uh, relevant in any event. So, to me, that just shows the difficulty of of revolution in a revolutionary way switching up your philosophy it's not just we have to produce the parts they have to work it's once you've done it then you have to invest the time in understanding the car and i'm just i'm curious your opinion of how they did this year relative to what you thought thought they might be able to achieve i thought they did exceptionally well to be honest compared to to where i thought they might be um, I think their biggest advantage was having Sergio behind the wheel because of his ability to whisper at the tyres um, and, and get absolutely the best from them. Um, and obviously that played into the way that they work strategically uh, because it allows them then to put themselves in a position that they wouldn't ordinarily be in. Um, and as you say, that the biggest problem that they did face was the fact that they are taking on a new philosophy However, they tried to bridge that gap by having their own suspension system because they could have bought that off the shelf from Mercedes at the end of the day. That is, you know, as part of the rules that they would have been allowed to to take the Mercedes side of things. But inboard suspension was all racing points. Um, So, you know, they did have some experience with what they were doing in terms of the relationship between the chassis and aerodynamics. Uh, but as you say, there was that learning curve that they they had to go through as well to to be able to get to where they got. Right, and this brings us to I think a, a team that a lot of people had a lot of interest in, and and that really surprised me. Uh, they were able to beat Racing Point, McLaren was that's obviously who I'm talking about, but they never really struck me 
or only on very few occasions, is actually having like the third fastest car on the grid. So how did they achieve their results? And I guess uh, from a technical point of view, what did you see out of them that impressed you or or depressed you, I suppose? I think I, I mentioned this at the start of the season when we reviewed um, the cars or mid-season, obviously, because we didn't do start of the season. But I, I'm, I mentioned the fact that I found the MCR35 to be sort of middle of the road, a car that was, you know, not supposed to be super, super fast peak performance. They designed a car that was essentially very good at a lot of different things. And that means that when you go to circuits that you're not used to, you've got a very easy car to set up. It gives the drivers confidence to be able to go out there and get the type of performance that they want from it. And I think that's kind of the the season in a nutshell for uh, McLaren. They worked on the fly with a car that was really um, set up to be very easy going on the tyres, very easy going in terms of setup. Um, and just give them, you know, the the type of results that we saw from them. They they always picked up um, the the baton whenever it was offered to them. They, they didn't tend to drop the ball very often because they they found themselves in that occupying that space that allowed them to to sort of just do their own thing. Um, and unfortunately for Ferrari, that's primarily because they were off their pace. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Um, But it sounds like you're almost talking about a sports car approach. Like they were just going for consistency, not outright raw pace. And they were, they, from the beginning of the year, were looking at the entire arc of the season, whatever it might have been, and and just said, we're going to show up with a car that will be 75% at every circuit. We'll find whatever gains we can find, and then we'll take whatever opportunities we can take. And I think if that encompasses it, then, I mean, you have to say they were pretty clever to have drivers that were capable of that. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, 75% in Formula One is not an, uh, a target that would be aimed at, to be fair. I would probably say more like 98% um, because everybody else is aiming at 100 But yeah, you're right. Uh, I do think that the margin for um, compliance within that car was much larger than they would usually go for and McLaren are known for trying to find a silver bullet they've spent years trying to find that one thing that will beat everybody um and they get it on occasion and then everybody else just copies it anyway so I think they've finally realized that you know it's time to to make life easier for themselves and have a development that would then allow them to go into the next regulation setting a, a much better situation i mean to be fair to them they had some really decent developments throughout the season they didn't stand still in any respect their front nose for argument's sake now follows the trajectory of the mercedes they've got the you know the the wider uh, bridge nose rather than the um sort of snouted nose that they had before so they dropped that development they've now got this one uh, they've chased that and they bought barge boards front wing you know you, you name it they they did throw uh, parts at the car and unfortunately for them throughout the season they had to back to back those parts because occasionally they got themselves in a situation where they didn't know if they were working either so you know that that is the problem with development especially in seasons like we've had where the data perhaps isn't as relevant to the what the, the data that we've had before because you're going to a different circuit 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Right. It's not as clean, and it can be difficult to tell if if it's the part or the driver or the track that you've never been to before that's that's responsible for the output that you're getting that makes a lot of sense to me um now this brings up uh i think an interesting issue we know they've gotten a lot of new investment it seems like they've really set themselves up to go into not next year's regulation set but the now 2022 regulation set with um with a big war chest but they are getting a brand new power unit next year Everyone seems to think this will put them over the top because they're assuming the Mercedes power unit is that much better than the Renault. But it, it comes with some, uh, I guess you'd call them golden handcuffs, for lack of uh, a better thing, in terms of the regulation restrictions we have going into next year. Yeah, I mean, obviously, because of the installation of the power unit being different from one car to the next, um, in fact, I I'll wind back a bit there. It's not the installation of the power unit per se. It's the ancillary components that you have to worry about. Things like the cooling. That's the major difference between one power unit to the next in terms of the landscape and architecture of how things are laid out. And so because of the big changes that are coming in uh, for 2022 and the fact that we're locked into 2021, I'm not so sure that having the Mercedes power unit for 2021 is going to be as big a gain as everybody thinks it might be if McLaren haven't been able to do everything they would ideally like to do. And to be fair, what they would ideally like to do is build a new car and they can't do that. So, you know, this year coming up will be a compromise. It's just how much of a compromise. And 
Also on top of that, the Mercedes power unit is in the back of the Williams, let's remember. So it is not the be end all and end all of performance parameters. You have to have all of your ducks lined up to shoot them down. And that could be problematic because of the fact that McLaren are locked in in certain ways. All right. Well, that end with the new driver coming in, no less. Yeah. Exactly. Makes life, again, difficult because you have another new parameter to deal with. Yes, I, I know. I know everyone loves the idea that drivers are just another parameter for engineers to manage. But um, I, I think on your side of the fence, that's pretty much the way they look at it, right? Pretty much. <laughs> well, I, I tell you what, since we're talking uh, so much about the midfield, I was actually, and, and everyone knows I'm a bit of a fan of Ocon. I'm not over the top about it. I don't defend him Okay, maybe I do. But aside from that, I was really interested because I was not someone who, who rated Cyril um, and Renault all that highly for the resource they have. It seems like a lot of it has been vastly misspent. But it did seem this year that they were able to deliver on their promise to Ricardo, albeit a year late. And it also seems that they kind of found something about halfway through the season. I don't think they were able to always get it to work at every circuit. Um, and some of that may just be the characteristic of the car. But from a development point of view, like how did they do in the development wars? Um, and are, are, they, are they really that far behind? I mean, are they just hanging on to fifth place through sheer luck? Or, or, or have they turned a corner and can you see them sort of being competitive at the top of the midfield at the very least. I think that would be the minimum they want to be. And or maybe beginning to find a little bubble um, that occasionally we saw some midfielders find between the top runners and the rest of the midfield that they're just running their own race at that point. Well, I think that the biggest thing for Renault this season has been that the resource that they have had over the last few years, as you rightly mentioned, appeared to have been wasteful. Um, but it te- there's a latency always in these situations. You have to remember that when they bought the team, it was in a very poor state of repair in terms of the fact that the amount of money that was needed to be invested behind the scenes to bring everything up to speed because of the previous owners not actually you know, continuing the good work that they'd already started. Um, so there's always a latency in terms of then getting everything back on board and it also in terms of getting the right staff in the right places and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I think this year we've started to see Renault taking more of an advantage out of the fact that they've got their ducks in a row um, uh, and they're able to, to extract the performance from their car. But as you rightly say, the biggest factor was the fact that they unlocked something at the Belgian Grand Prix Um, The way in which that they were able to set their car up for that particular Grand Prix then was carried over to the rest of the season. And I think it's something associated to ride height um, and it's something that's particularly sensitive. Uh, That then meant that they could trim the car out so they could run with less wing. And then that obviously then unlocks more top speed and it plays into being able to set the car up differently at different tracks and the behaviour of the tyres and so on and so forth. And the daisy chain goes round and around. But for me, I, I do feel that Renault did make progress. And I do think that having had the kind of season that they've had this year, I do think that they can carry that forward. But on the top of that, you have to remember that Ferrari will be uh, more of a force to be reckoned with next year. And on top of that, McLaren, Racing Point, it's all very tight in that midfield area. So 
I still see it being very, very similar for next year, which, to be honest, is, is quite positive in, in many respects. Yeah, no, I, I remember covering the races, some of the midfield battles, you'd have six or seven places covered by like just a couple of hundreds at the end of qualifying. It just the, the competition there. I mean, I know it was exciting to see the occasional Red Bull do well or this, that, or, but the competition in the midfield all year long has just been stellar. And one of the most exciting things about the sport, in my opinion, that said, I'm going to talk about Ferrari now. Uh, everybody loves to bash Ferrari. They love to bash their strategists. I'm guilty of this. Uh, The way they treat their drivers, maybe they deserve it. But I I, I did argue on the last show, and I'm curious to get your opinion of this, that in one very, very important way, that we owe this entire season to Ferrari. Because they, as we know, had pushed some boundaries. They confessed their sins to the FIA. And they, they were they were told that they had to take all the toys away and, and explain exactly what they'd been up to. And they showed up at the beginning of the year with a car that was nowhere near competitive. And as soon as the season shut down and the, and the resource restrictions were put into place, Ferrari agreed to them knowing, absolutely knowing, that it would ruin this entire season for them, quite possibly next season as well. And I'm just going to say them agreeing to that either means that they felt like the entire sport would collapse forever if they didn't, or maybe, just maybe, they are suddenly having a slightly different point of view, what with all the management changes and whatnot that's been going on at the team. So where do you sit on that fence? I know nothing any Formula One team does is entirely selfless, but I will say it surprised me to see them give away the ability to fix problems that they knew would just ruin their entire season. Yeah, but on the other hand, Matt, I I do feel that Ferrari also realised the fact that they were in extremely deep water. They were up to their neck in it, basically, already. Um, So whatever happened, they were going to spend a good portion of the season with armbands on, trying to swim away from a shark. Um, Because they obviously had this agreement with the FIA, we're all not supposed to understand or know what it means, but we all know that it hindered them in terms of their power unit performance. We all know that they were anti-aliasing the uh, fuel flow sensor, let's say, um, in order that they could increase the fuel flow. Um, and for me, they just basically thought, well, we're in this situation um, we're going to look like the bad guys if we do. We'll look like the bad guys if we don't. So we better take this one on the chin. We'll we'll come out of it looking better um, if we say we'll take this thing on the chin. Um, but yeah, it's it's a difficult one because you expect Ferrari to come out aggressively. That is their narrative. But with this particular scenario, it's almost as if they knew that they were dead in the water before the, everything began. Um, and it didn't matter what they were going to do. They knew that they had a long road back to to getting back this performance. And in reality, this season has shown the fact that they needed the power unit to be able to do that because they have made a huge amount of aerodynamic changes on that car, and it still hasn't brought them anywhere near the, the rest of the pack. So, well, except for Leclerc in qualifying, obviously. Um Ferrari are obviously a difficult animal to talk about because you don't want to upset everybody about the way that you talk about them. But I do feel that they um, 
they needed reining in because they'd clearly uh, been using some tactics that weren't strictly legal and that was having an effect on everybody else. But you have to give it to Mercedes as well because they took that performance as genuine from Ferrari and they raised their bar to get to that level. So that just goes to show you that the possibility of what Ferrari was doing was possible uh, just without the nefarious tactics. Okay, so, so far, it's been a negative that they did what they did. It's been a double negative because it raised Mercedes' bar. Is there any light in this tunnel for Ferrari this season? Did did anything, any developments they brought, anything that you saw, is there any good we can bring out of it uh, for, the, for the Ferrari fans? And just because we need we need a team to step up and be that be that other competitive team that so rarely actually happens in Formula One, but we keep on dreaming about every year. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's actually been positive for them in some ways. It's been a bit of a blessing in disguise because you have to remember that when you're running towards the front end, you can be a bit oblivious to certain factors. So because of this power unit advantage that they'd managed to get, they perhaps overlooked some of the negative never negative aspects of their car design because they were able to override that performance factor with the, the power unit advantage. And so what we... St- started to see towards the tail end of this season is them actually make a massive U-turn in terms of their development uh, pattern. And they actually started to install a a plethora of parts on the car that we'd seen in previous years. So effectively, they've said, well, we've got this wrong and we need to go backwards and we need to start to reapply things that have worked in the past. Things like um, the tunnel underneath the crash structure gearbox area uh, that had gone away for the start of this year and it, it, it went back on the car towards the end of the season. And they started to make changes at the front of the car with the nose and the turning vanes and the barge board area that were very similar to ones that they'd had the previous season. So it just speaks to the fact that they'd got themselves into a bit of a blind alley in that respect and they needed to turn around. Um, but also on top of that, you have to remember that they they had the same problem that Haas were complaining about as well in terms of their uh, suspension situation. And so, you know, it's let's just say that I think that they'll be glad that the SF1000 has been retired at the end of this season. And hopefully they'll have been able to knock some of the corners off of the the SF21 uh, that's coming for next year. Well, hopefully so. Uh, it's interesting when you talk about like them bringing old solutions back. I mean, are we talking about they finally did that Mercedes thing where they sent the interns rummaging through the old file drawers and stopped them from just using Google to find things? I mean, are we talking about that kind of old or are we just talking about when was the last time we felt like this really worked the way we wanted to? Let's put that on the car and move forward again. That's essentially it. They they basically wound the car back um, several specifications, let's say, uh, and decided to use those parts on the car. Um, They're not exactly those parts, actually, but parts very similar in the way in which they operate so that they would work with the SF1000 rather than the car that they were designed around prior to that. Okay, I think that makes sense, maybe. Um, There's one more team I think that we need to talk about, and and I'm just going to for our listeners who are devoted fans of Haas and Williams and Alfa Romeo, I'm just going to say that uh, to paraphrase you, 
they didn't bring a lot to the table this year because all of them in their own ways, we, Williams was sold. Haas said from the beginning that they were spending no money at all. And they didn't, I mean, they literally went to, and got parts from last year when they ran out of this year's parts and, and William Williams, Oz, and I think Alvaro Romeo may be in a similar situation in terms of, they just seem like they're trying to husband resource and maybe wait for 2022 to show up. And they're just sort of skimming along. So from a technical point of view, if I'm not wrong, they didn't really bring a lot for you to talk about to the table, even if they did have some improvements in performance and have some good performances throughout the year. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's always, you know, those standout parts that you could talk about, but as a general rule of thumb, they weren't very entertaining, let's say, in terms of the ability that they brought to the season. You know, 99 points was the difference between uh, Alpha Romeo and Alpha Tauri. That's that's the, the void that we're looking at. So, um, yeah, it's for me, it's easier to look at the, the front end of the grid than look at the rear, especially when they're not really bringing too much to the table. Okay, so let's talk about AlphaTauri real quick. I was surprised. At the beginning of the year, they didn't really... They seemed to be like, oh, you know, a scavenger. They were point scavengers. They were just good enough that if things happened, they could get into 8th or ninth or 10th place. But as the year went on, they just seemed to get stronger and stronger. And then, you know, you had Gasly winning a race, which, wow. You had Fiat at Imola making those passes. and And it seemed like they wound up with a pretty drivable, decent, competitive car, but I have no actual idea how that happened. Again, they didn't bring a huge amount of parts to the car. You know, there wasn't a huge amount of aerodynamic change around the car, and I think that really kind of helped them in some respects because sometimes I feel that uh, the lower end of the grid, you can try to chuck too much at it, i.e. you'll just throw parts at a car and hope that something kind of, gels and works um, whereas they just tended to stick with the plan from the get-go that they were going to rely on their progress with the tires their understanding of the car and the way they set it up and probably most important the gains that they would get through the honda power unit and i think that's a major factor when you consider how both red bull and Alpha Tauri seasons unfolded. Okay, so you're saying that in a lot of ways, their performance is simply a bellwether for the kind of improvements that Honda themselves made across the season, obviously to a certain extent in conjunction with Red Bull. Yeah, because obviously you you, you look at the uh, performance gains on both sides, be it Red Bull or Alpha Tauri, and there is obviously the common denominator, and that is the, the power unit. And whilst Red Bull spent a huge amount of resource improving the car to be able to bring it up to the the level that we expected them to be in comparison to Mercedes. Alpha Tauri didn't really have that sort of development pattern. And so the factors that come into play are understanding of tyres, understanding of the car and the, the Honda power unit. And so, you know, those are the three factors I would highlight as being the major contributors to why we've seen such a good back end of the season for Alpha Tauri. All right. Well, that that does go a long way to explaining it. And I think everybody's pretty delighted that we got to see them come on and make the midfield an even more entertaining place. But there is one thing that happened this season that I was curious about. And and I know for people who followed the show that I occasionally talk about what I call the quality step, 
which is be the improvement that Mercedes and Ferrari mainly back in 2017 and 2018, they would make very regular progressions between the end of, of P3 and the last session of qualifying such that you could actually begin to predict how they were doing. And I, I followed that data for a while. So I was kind of interested in how this party mode ban, which happened halfway through the season, was going to affect the teams, didn't seem to have a great deal of impact from the outside on the places in which the teams qualified, but you saw it as kind of a really fascinating natural experiment. And as I understand it, you've been keeping a little data hidden and you're ready to share it with the world now. Um, well, it's not so much that it's hidden. I suppose anybody could have done the same thing. I just kept a spreadsheet of um, poll to Q, you know, Q3 um, times to poll. Um, and then you use that as an average over each session uh, to, to identify how close each team are and how close each driver pairing is, which is the thing that I find most fascinating that in those scenarios because it allows you then to average out over a spectrum of races and see how close they are. You know, everybody says, oh, well, Carlos Sainz was the measure of Lando Norris or vice versa. But when it comes down to the actual numbers of it, you can see exactly who was better than the other over that, that set period. And? <laughs> well, if we're, if we're talking about that particular battle, it was extremely close. Um, Lando Norris, Carlos Sainz was within a tenth of one another as an average which wow. you know is amazing. But that the interesting factor there, um, when you compare that data to some of the other teams, is that, that there's no change in that deficit, whether the qualifying mode was available or whether the ban was in place. So in the first part of the season, they were in within a tenth of one another. And in the back end of the season, they were relatively within a tenth of one another. You obviously have some discrepancies from race to race, but I'm talking about an average. Right, right, um, right. You know, because sometimes they didn't get to Q3, so you, you don't have that data to work off of. Um, but as an average, there are approximately a tenth from, it, from each other, as with a Renault pairing. So there you go. Your your Mr. Ocon um, is within a tenth of uh, Daniel Ricciardo and vice versa. Um, and I found that fascinating that, and, and again, Renault power unit in the back of the Renault and the Renault power unit in the back of the McLaren didn't change the uh, difference between a quality mode being available and a quality mode ban. They were, they were very, very similar in terms of those um, gaps between one another. Right. So if I was, if Spanners was on the show, I'd be like, ah, oh, see, proves Ocon is just as good as Ricardo is. But actually, I'm more fascinated by wanting to know if you found a difference uh, with the other power units between the befores and the afters. Um, because it it was, you know, it was mooted to bring uh, more parity to the field and and fairer racing. Did you find any evidence anywhere that that actually was accomplished? Yeah, I mean, obviously you have to take into account the fact that you've got other factors involved. So this is an average. You know, the the I've taken the first half of the season and the rear end of the season and and averaged everything out. But you have to take into account that. Uh, the development of aero, tyres, chassis throughout the season. Um, but the biggest thing that I noticed was that the launch of, of um, Max Verstappen closer to the Mercedes, um, he got 
a jump of half a second on them as an average. So no quality mode, he was nine tenths behind them as an average. And then when we had the quality mode ban, he was four tenths behind them. So, you know, that's quite a big difference and obviously not one that is all to do with the other aspects. This is a difference with the power unit side of things. That That is amazing to me. So it seems like Mercedes really did have sort of a unparalleled advantage by being able to use all those different modes across the course of a weekend. Um, did you find, was there anything in the teammate data that surprised you uh, once from before and after? Well, the, 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 the good thing from Albon's point of view, uh, considering the news that he's had of late of losing the drive to Perez, was that he was always around four tenths off of Max Verstappen as an average. Across the board, whether it was pre or post ban, he was four tenths off of Verstappen as an average. And that to me suggests that it's not all about the fact that Albon was underperforming. It's the fact that perhaps Max Verstappen is in a different league to the likes of an Albon, just like Lewis Hamilton is in a different league to the likes of a Valtteri Bottas. Certain drivers are able to extract more when it comes to qualifying performance and I think or race performance in for that matter and I think that kind of speaks to that is the fact that the average stayed pretty constant all the way through for Albon um, yet we always looked at, he always looked as if he was miles off the pace but when you average it out the four, he was four tenths away from Max Verstappen. Well that's a smaller gap than I would have guessed if I'm being honest my usual rule of thumb for teammates is three tenths. If you can if you can notch it inside three tenths on every given weekend, then then your team is going to be okay with whatever your performance is. Although I don't know, the midfield now is so competitive that that yardstick may have changed. We talked about Mercedes. Uh, we talked about Renault. We talked about Honda. We've not talked about Ferrari. Was there any difference there from before and after that was uh, quantifiable or worth talking about? Well, the first thing I suppose you have to talk about is the fact that I haven't got any teammate comparison data in the back end of the season because, unfortunately, Vettel never made Q3. Um, so you can't compare him to Leclerc in the back end of the season. Um, but the obvious thing is is that Ferrari gained about three-tenths um, with the quality mode ban. So, you know, they, they did make a step towards the, the rest of the field. Um just quickly going back to Mercedes, though, I think it's interesting to note that the quality ban had a pretty big effect on the teammate battle there. Because in the opening stage of the season, when we had the quality mode available to the drivers, uh, Lewis Hamilton was about four tenths as an average, better than Valtteri Bottas. Um, but when we got into the no quality mode, uh, it was five one hundredths was the average. So that goes to prove that perhaps Hamilton was getting more from the car in the opening stage of the season when the quality mode was available uh, compared to when obviously we didn't have quality mode. But again, like I say, all interesting factors, but you know, there's, there's still things that you can read in between the lines with all that sort of stuff. Well, that's going to start a few conversations over Christmas dinner, I presume. Uh, I'm looking forward to the article that gets written about this. 
wherever it may come out on your site or on Motorsport. It's it's fascinating research and really interesting data. And uh, I can't wait to see what other insights you glean as you continue to pour over those numbers. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get there uh, at certain points. Uh, not sure where that will be or when it will be, but I will uh, put a more thorough analysis behind it when I've taken a, a, another good poke around in that that data. All right. So before we wrap up the show, there's two more things that I'd like to talk about. One, I feel like we need to at least go over the outlines of the season that is to come. There's all kinds of new development rules. Uh, there's a very big question um, I, I've seen put forward that I've asked and I've seen asked many times about the effect of the new regulations on the two basic philosophies, the high rake versus the low rake philosophy. But even more importantly, we've got brand new tires and we need to talk about how that's going to impact everything else because you do say it's a daisy chain. So I can only assume, since the tires are the only part of the car that actually touch the ground, that they will wind up being kind of important too. They're always important, Matt. You know that by now. <laughs> Indeed, I do. So so of the rules that we're looking at uh, going forward, what do you want to talk about in terms of you think it's going to have the most impact on the championship and on the teams? Okay, well, just briefly to go over what's changing technically, the floor is having a diagonal cut in it ahead of the rear tyre. So a section of the floor will be cut out. You won't have the... Uh, slots, strikes, um, fully enclosed holes, etc., alongside the floor edge because they won't be allow- allowed next season. However, some of the teams have been showing their hand in that respect um, with development floors for 2021, and there's already some very interesting solutions along that respect um, because they're already trying to find performance, obviously. We've then got the winglets on the lower half of the rear brake duct have to be 40 millimetres shorter, which affects the interaction with the outside portion of the diffuser. And then the diffuser itself, the strakes that fit down the centre, which keep the airflow aligned, they will also have to be 50 mil higher than they are now, uh, which obviously has an impact on the way that they control the airflow through uh, the diffuser itself. Right. So it sounds like what you're basically saying is it's going to be a lot harder to seal the diffuser at the back of the car. And that's even before we bring in the fact that our new tires are going to be running at lower pressures than previous ones, which means that we're going to have everybody's favorite, that massive wobble that I'm sure must keep the aerodynamicist up late at night. That's right. Yeah, been, uh, the obvious thing is, is every time you change the the tires construction, uh, its shape, you end up feeding to the fact that you have to change the aerodynamic profile as well. So, and and obviously, as you mentioned, lower tire pressures also mean that the deformation of the tire is different. So you have different characteristics depending on how you lean on the tire. Um, that is one of the things that is incredibly difficult to model because it's transient. It's always changing. Uh, and obviously that is even more difficult for the lower end of the grid who have less resources, but I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, all of this obviously feeds into what you asked me about with the rake problem with Red Bull and Mercedes being at op- opposite ends of the spectrum. But I think one thing that people are forgetting about because of the focus at the rear end of the car, because that's where the technical changes are happening, we also have to remember that the front tyre has a different shape, deformation 
etc so that means you have to then change your aerodynamic profile to deal with those issues at the front of the car that then feed to the rear of the car so it's a whole aero map change andy green was actually um saying that this is a massive thing he was complaining um when we came back to racing because the fia had obviously put this under everybody's nose when people were thinking that the season may or may not actually happen as a potential way of you know changing the rules up and everybody agreed to it not really thinking of the implications and then when everybody looked at it in the wind tunnel they're like oh my god this is massive so I do think there's a there's a massive challenge, but they have had a pretty decent amount of time to try to deal with the problem. And obviously they've got a whole year's worth of development to try and get more performance from it. Yeah, and if we're going to be entirely fair, they also had the utter opportunity to get new tires for this previous season. That would have been less change, wouldn't have gone along with the other aerodynamic platform changes we're seeing going into this season, and probably would not have needed any kind of updating. I mean, this is really the team's selfishness um, coming back to bite them. Yeah, definitely. Um, but also in terms of the rake, you, I'll, I'll mention that as well whilst I'm here because obviously you, you did bring it up. Yes. Um, I think a lot of people assumed that Red Bull would be hit most by this issue uh, because of the fact that they run with a higher rake than obviously Mercedes run with their long wheelbase low-line rake. Um I think it's about six six of one, half a dozen of the other, if I'm being honest, on the fact that, yes, the volume that Red Bull cre- creates is due to the fact that they have a higher rake, but the volume that Mercedes creates is because they have a longer floor. And because the cutout is now in the floor edge, they will effectively have a longer cutout, which then feeds inboard to what you do inside of that volume. So the answer is it's going to hurt both. It's just who has been able to figure out how it hurts them and can they recover from it by, you know, means of other aerodynamic um, changes around the car. Fascinating. This is starting to sound a lot like some of my daughter's math problems. Which volume is bigger if X is slowly approaching Y and Z is... Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, Yeah, I'm kidding, but it's not entirely inaccurate to think of it that way the the diffuser has a volume that you can calculate geometrically but then it also has what i would think of as like an effective volume which is what can we extract from it given the influence of the tires given the influence of the aerodynamics and what you're basically saying is it's going to affect the team that has the worst solution to the problem of how do i keep these new how do, how do i keep the tire wake squirt out of the diffuser so that i can make it more efficient yeah precisely i mean the way i always like to see it is i see two volumes the actual volume and the volume inside of that that is unaffected by the wake issues and the turbulence and the your instability and everything else that's going on and i you know that that is the way to actually see it because that is what you will predominantly get most of the time it's not the peak. It's not what you will see when you have the most downforce available, but it is what you will see when you are in the worst possible conditions. And I, and obviously, that's where you work outwards from to make those improvements because you move the you move the bar outwards to to get more volume in in that particular area. 
Well, now that we've had that fun chat, and I know people will be disappointed we didn't spend a lot more time talking about the tires, but we will get to them. There will be more about the tires as we go on. But we do have some new rules affecting the 2022 cars and affecting uh, both the wind tunnel and the CFD time that the teams get. Um, uh, before we wrap up the show, would you like to just go over those real quick? And and in terms of solving the diffuser problem and going forward, solving the 2022 car problem, how is this going to affect the teams? Okay, so what we are going to have for the first time is a sliding scale, which will handicap the more well-resourced teams at the front of the grid and hand an advantage to those at the rear of the grid that are considered to have less resource, the likes of Williams, etc. So if we take 2021 as the example, because that's next year, obviously, Mercedes, who won the championship, will only have 90% of the resource available uh, that is measured within the regulations. Um, so however, however many wind tunnel hours they can operate at, Mercedes will only have 90% of that. Fifth position will be back at level pegging. Ferrari will be at 102.5% in sixth position. And then Williams will have 112.5% of that allocation. So for 2021, where the team must continue to develop 2021's car, but also do their development of 2022, the teams at the front end of the grid will have less resource available to to them to do so, and the ones at the rear end of the grid will have more. Following on from that, when we do move into the next regulation set for 2022 to 2025, it gets even worse for the big teams. The first team in the championship, once the rules come into place on the 1st of January 2022, will have just 70% of the resource, whereas the one team at the back of the grid will have 115%. So if you win if you win next year's championship, your handicap is massive going into 2022. And that will obviously then affect how you develop 22 car and so on and so forth. So this obviously is designed to try to work alongside the cost cap to reduce the resources that each team expend on you know, development of the cars. Um, whether it will be successful and whether there's massive pushback after the first year and it appears to not do its job and we have another massive massive knee-jerk reaction as we normally do to everything remains to be seen. But that is where we are at at the moment. And it will, for me at least, I feel have quite a big impact, especially at the front end of the grid and obviously for the likes of Williams who will get a, a large chunk of resource that they might not otherwise be able to have access to. Well, I was going to end the show, but now I am full of questions. For example, uh, we learned just today that there's now going to be a Haas satellite office in Ferrari. They are at the back of the grid and will have more wind tunnel time. Now, it is entirely 100% forbidden for them to share information. However, with extra time and the ability to buy parts from Ferrari, even if no information passes, simply how Haas deals with those parts is going to wind up being data for Ferrari who gets less wind tunnel time under these new regulations. Have I got that wrong? I think it's a little bit different for Haas because they will use, they use the Delara tunnel as far as I'm aware, um, rather than fully in the Ferrari tunnel. I can't, I can't actually remember well, which tunnel they're in, but now they can only use one tunnel. Right. Um, no, I, I just meant that but they can use extra time testing things 
and Ferrari can see how they how the parts change because they're basically buying as much Ferrari off the shelf as they can. I'm saying Ferrari might still get information from it, even if it's not direct, because they have extra time. Yeah, I mean, this is the argument that came around for 2016, 17, isn't it, with with Haas and their collaboration and the way in which they used the rules to to their own will. Um, Whether it's possible for them to find a niche in which that both teams get an advantage again, um, well, at the end of the day, if the rules aren't tight enough, then they need to be changed. That's what happened last time. And again, if it's not happening right this time, then they need to be adjusted once more. Yeah. Um, but obviously what you will end up with is an argument over the use of satellite teams. Uh, I mean, the, the, the whole idea of a satellite team for Haas is all really based around Schumacher uh, being at that particular team. Um, because of the fact that he is a junior driver and there is pressure to obviously have him in the Ferrari team at a certain point. And so they're obviously looking to to help and assist Haas in giving him the, the tools that he requires to, to get better results. Uh, but on top of that, you have to consider the fact that um, Haas themselves will really want to, to improve upon the position that they found themselves in this season. Um, so they're, they're going to take any bit of help that they can get in reality. Fair enough. Uh, and now there were a couple of quick questions from the listeners. Um, one, I think we've already answered from uh, Ned pronounced Lucas, not Sam or Michael. Thank you for that useful name in the Slack. Um, wanted your opinion of which team has the best start on, on 21. Um, how long's a piece of string really, I guess is the answer to that question because that, you know, nobody really ever shows their hand completely. Uh, there is a lot of teams that in the back end of the season have been testing 2021 parts, you know, the, the floor diffuser, uh, rear brake ducts. Ferrari probably been the most proactive in that situation. Uh, they had a couple of different specifications, whereas other teams only really tended to test one solution. Um, but then you have the situation that I mentioned earlier with Mercedes. They haven't tested aerodynamic parts in terms of you know things that are specifically 2021 related, but they have tested parts uh, at the end of the season that are going to be carried over uh, and give data for that car. So I mean, you, you only have to look as far as Mercedes for me in terms of where we're looking for next season. Once again, I think it'll be a struggle for any of the teams to be able to keep up with uh, where they start the season, because I think that's their intention uh, for this year. They have got to a point where they wanted to develop their car so that they got a massive start to 2021 in order that they can then focus their full weight behind 2022, because the resource restriction is in place that we just talked about, whereby they have less wind tunnel and CFD time available to them to be able to to pr- produce a 2022 car. So everybody's at a different stage because of this new sliding scale, because everybody can afford to direct their resource differently based on where they are in the season. It's a bit like when you're watching a TV series and there's multiple arcs going on and you have to try and concentrate on all of those. That's what the teams are at. And Mercedes are the the best for me at least, in terms of being able to control the overall arc whilst having many mini arcs going on in between. 
I think that answers the question about exactly like I expected the answer to be. Uh, one more question from I Am Ray's Chill Canoe Ride. Again, the Slack chat has just the, the a bit off the chain with the names here. Um, a quick question about, well, let's make it your Christmas present. If you had to solve the missing downforce in the floor problem, what would you be thinking about? And if you got to wave your magic wand... What new idea or regulation would you like to see that isn't necessarily there right now? Quite a broad question, isn't it? Um, In answer of the first question, as I've already talked about, there's a lot of things that can be changed on the car next season to improve performance. And as I say, there's a lot of things that will be focused on those particular changes that are visible, the the floor cut, the winglets and, uh, and the diffuser. But I think that we mustn't rule out how much change has gone on at the front of the floor to deal with the issue that is going on behind it. Uh, And certainly uh, our favourite topic of barge boards in the Slack group. Um, There'll be much chatter in that area next season, I would imagine. The barge board cluster is going to be even more important next year because of the way that it changes the flow structures leading towards the floor uh, behind it. So. Um, for me, I would be concentrating on that area of the car because it's the area of the most low-hanging fruit. It has proved to be since 2017 when that area was reopened up. Um, and on top of that, obviously, I think we're going to have a huge amount of development on that diagonal cut area of the car because without the fully enclosed holes that we've had recently, we can't seal the edge of the floor in the same way. Um, so I think one thing that the rules don't rule out are slots. And I know we've had this discussion before, well, isn't a slot a hole, but they are very different things. And I think we will start to see a, a lot more slotted elements again in that area. Okay, then where can we find you on social media? Where should we come seek out your wisdom and wit and humor? Well, obviously the Twitters is where I hang out the most, and that is at Summers F1. Uh, you can obviously find me in the Slack group for Mr. Apex on occasion as well and getting involved in a few discussions over there. Indeed. And if you would like to join, all you have to do is pony up uh, a very small amount of money per month on Patreon, and you get not only ad-free feeds, but you also get to join the Slack group where you can talk to people like Summers, people like Spanners, and even, if you're interested, people like me. And if you want to take a really deep dive into this, do be sure to check out summersf1.co.uk where he puts up the articles they won't let him write on motorsport.com. You see what I did there? And be sure to hit the link for the latest Missed Apex episode as well. As for me, I'm MattPT55 on the Twitters. And remember, drive hard, play loose, be kind to your tires. that went pretty well yeah not bad and we only have nine more shows to get through all the rest of the stuff 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.